This episode of Hearsay is sponsored by the Wheels of Justice, a partnership against cancer, benefiting the Children's Colorado Center for Cancer and Blood Disorders. For more information, visit wheelsofjusticecycling.org. In June, we looked at the political briar patch of funding prosecutors' offices in Colorado. Because they're mostly locally funded by the counties in each district, there's a resource divide between wealthy and poor counties. In bill testimony and one-on-one conversations, several of the district attorneys pointed to the funding model for state public defense. In Colorado, the state funds all of the public defender's offices. Prosecutors say the state should fund their offices similarly. To get past all the contentious rhetoric, I started talking to sources outside Colorado about different circumstances that can influence how effectively prosecutors or public defenders fulfill their roles. Prosecutors in Colorado say they struggle because they don't have enough funding. But what are the other moving parts of how well their offices function? And each seems to think their responsibilities are more burdensome than the other side has. And I do not mean to indicate that the public defender's job is easy, but their job gets incredibly, uh, I I think their job gets much easier the better we do our job. So the prep work for the prosecutor is, here's your case that comes from the cops, and off we go. I got the sense prosecutors and public defenders aren't going out for drinks together after a trial. The complexity of figuring out what resources they each need to be effective is as much about finding the perfect metric as it is about recognizing that the two sides don't exactly see eye to eye. They may as well be seeing different colored skies. This is Hearsay from Law Week, Colorado. I'm Julia Cardi. When someone is arrested, they're told if you can't afford an attorney, one will be provided for you. Access to counsel is a constitutional right for defendants. Because that's so baked into our court system, there's a lot of information out there for evaluating a public defense system. There are national standards set by the American Bar Association, case law, and studies about state systems. Those state indigent defense systems can take several different forms. Some, like Colorado's, are funded totally by the state. Others pass the funding responsibility to local governments. In some systems, attorneys are public employees. Other states provide defense by contracting with private attorneys. Some systems do both. For any of these different structures, the true north for measuring a criminal defense system's effectiveness is the set of 10 principles developed by the ABA. The standards include things like making sure an attorney is appointed early on in a case, that public defenders aren't overloaded with cases, and that the public defense system is independent. To clarify, when I refer to effectiveness of a defense system, That means it's success in meeting defendants' constitutional right to representation. David Carroll, executive director of the Sixth Amendment Center, said meeting those constitutional rights requires more than just providing a defendant with a warm body with a bar license. So if a system is not independent of the judiciary, it doesn't matter if it's a public defender office or if it's private assigned counsel. Um, You could go through the list. Same thing. If they're not appointed early enough in the in the life of the case, it doesn't matter if you're a public staff employee or if you're a private attorney. The important thing is that uh, whatever systems used meets meets those national standards, 
and it's funded at such a level that they can uh, they can continue to meet those standards. The ABA's standards also say having an oversight system for public defense matters. Former Colorado public defender Doug Wilson said independence of an oversight body is just as important as independence in the public defense system itself. He talked about the layers of oversight Colorado's system has as backstops to check different interests and agendas. I was appointed by a five-member commission. That commission was appointed by the Supreme Court. In order to try to take politics out, there were you can't have more than three people from one political party, and there are three lawyers to lay. And the oversight, the oversight from that perspective is hire and fire <clears throat> or hire and remove the public defender, the state public defender by that commission. But there's additional oversights. The, we had to go to the state legislature for funding. We're a separate independent agency in the judicial department. So that means joint budget committee reviews and we are required to, to submit reports uh, and reviews and approves the budget requests uh, or denies the budget requests. I spent a lot of time in front of the House and Senate Judiciary Committee and we had liaisons, legislative liaison, a legislator that was our liaison that we reported to as well as those committees. And then last but not least, in the big elephant in the room all the time is the Office of Regulation Council, which doesn't just supervise us, but it supervises the entire legal profession. Um, the one that is it was always, though, the touchy part was, I think, oftentimes the Judicial Department thought maybe they had a little bit more input into the oversight of the Public Defender's Office, and there's no better way to get my hackles up than to, for the Supreme Court to start suggesting that I would do things. But when public defense appears to fall short, there are the systemic lawsuits. Dozens of lawsuits around the country have been brought against public defense systems. They claim that the system has failed in some way to meet defendants' constitutional rights. One such lawsuit is Davison v. Washington, brought by the state's American Civil Liberties Union. The case focuses on juvenile defense in Grays Harbor County. Senior staff attorney John Mitchley said the state delegates public defense to its counties, and Grays Harbor uses a system of private attorneys who work on a contract basis. Our constitutional claim is that the state ultimately has oversight and must uh, guarantee uh, adequate counsel and that they're not doing that in this county, even though they know that there's no oversight or supervision and they know that all the flaws in the county. That in fact, there are state statutory requirements that counties have standards and the standards have to include oversight and supervision. There's uh, absolutely no review of the contract attorney's um, performance of any kind. The only review that they could come up with was saying, well, the judges observe her in uh, court, but there's no supervision or review of her cases or follow-up on anything having to do with, with uh, what's going on. And so it is totally crucial that some kind of review and supervision happen. 
Midgley said the county's system also falls short of the public defense standard number one on the ABA's list, that choosing funding and paying public defenders are independent. In Grace Harbor County, and this contributes to all of this, the judges uh, pretty much pick the public defenders and people feel beholden to the judges. And so this independence function is very Just much that it violates matters. a rule, but the independence really matters. And in this case, um, there is evidence that people, uh, the, the defenders have not raised issues because they're worried about uh, their jobs, worried about the, about the uh, repercussions of having been uh, picked by the judges. So it's, that's a huge issue. And the ABA standards are, are part of what we're raising in the case. Midgley talked about the role the ABA standards play in claims against public defense generally. They can be brought up in systemic lawsuits like the ACLU's in Washington or in ineffective counsel claims for post-conviction relief. He said courts will look at the ABA's standards as evidence even if they can't form the whole basis of an ineffective assistance claim. But what they say is that the standards are relevant to determining ineffective assistance, but they don't necessarily set the constitutional standard, if that makes sense. The constitutional standard is, you know, ineffective assistance, you have to show certain things. And failure to follow the standards is relevant evidence, but you can't, what you can't do is say, just because somebody doesn't uh, comply with the standards, that in, the, in of, uh, of itself is an effective assistance. Things get muddier on the prosecution side. Prosecutors have discretion with what cases they should file charges in, when they offer plea bargains, and when to drop cases. Jurisdictions need enough funding and manpower to handle their workloads but each possible measurement for how to distribute resources has flaws. And there isn't a set of established guidelines similar to the ABA's standards for public defense. There's the option to file ethical complaints against prosecutors mishandling their workloads. And someone might make the argument a prosecutor violated their right to a speedy trial. But those happen after things go wrong. One argument is that caseloads are the key measure of how effectively an office can function. From that point of view, Funding matters because it affects the number of attorneys an office can hire to spread out caseloads. But in 2002, the American Prosecutors Research Institute published research on caseloads and concluded it isn't realistic to develop national caseload standards. Caseloads vary too much because of factors like a jurisdiction's criminal code, the crimes its prosecutors have authority over, and its court system. The ABA also doesn't have caseload number standards. The Bar Association didn't comment for this story. I talked about caseloads with Duffy Stone, president of the National District Attorneys Association. He's the elected solicitor in South Carolina's 14th Circuit. He talked about why he thinks caseloads are a useful metric, despite the shortcomings, for figuring out the resources a prosecutor's office needs. For one thing, caseload numbers take out the subjectivity of how skilled a prosecutor is. Think of it from a medical perspective, because I think most people can th can can visualize this. You are, uh, if you are ill, you go to the doctor's office and you open the reception door and the reception area door, and there's 375 people in that waiting room. The question is going to be, when is the doctor? No matter how good the doctor is, when is the doctor going to get to you, and what condition are you going to be in once the doctor gets there? 
uh, if you've got a prosecutor that has 375 cases in front of theirs, um, they have to. It doesn't matter how good the prosecutor is; they they still have to. There's still going to be a tremendous amount of delay on that. The American Prosecutors Research Institute noted local jurisdictions can develop their own caseload standards. Stone said a study of South Carolina's criminal court system found a link between prosecution caseloads and county poverty levels. We did a we did a study uh, of the South Carolina criminal system. The prosecutors uh, did this for the fiscal year 2016-2017, and, and 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 we found a number of things that were. That were that were interesting. What we also found was uh, that uh, of the 46 counties in South Carolina, the ones that had uh, higher than average poverty rates uh, also had a higher percentage of cases. And let me back up and make sure I'm clear about that. What we found was that the prosecutors in poorer counties at about 27% higher caseloads than those in wealthier counties. Uh, at, at that time, our average poverty in South Carolina was 17%. Um, the, average, the average prosecutor uh, in counties that had a higher poverty level than that had 468 cases. Those that had fewer uh, were coming in at an average of 375 cases. Using caseloads to measure prosecution is one of the points that prosecutors and public defenders I talked to clashed over the most. I hadn't planned to talk to Doug Wilson about it, but when I mentioned it offhand during our conversation, he had a lot to say. In particular, he said prosecutors should be looking at workloads, not caseloads. So wait, what's the difference? My sources and studies I looked at say workload is how much time prosecutors and public defenders put into each case. One of the ways to figure out what resources are necessary for each one of the often described as the three-legged stool is how much time do you spend working on a particular type of case. When prosecutors in particular continue to focus on caseloads, not every case is created equal, equally, and it's more effective, and the judges do it as well as the public defender system here, to look at how much time is invested in a particular type of case as opposed to how many of those particular types of cases do I have. They control their caseload. I mean, they're the ones that file charges. Uh, unlike the judges or, or the defense lawyers, we get what we get. PDs don't have any ability to say no. Um, they get whatever case comes in if somebody is poor. The prosecutors have complete ability to control who gets charged, what gets charged, uh, how serious the charges are, and most importantly, is the case disposed of through uh, plea negotiations, or dismissed, or does it go to trial? All of that is in their, their little, I like, they like to say, toolbox. Uh, defense lawyers nor judges have those tools in the toolbox. During my conversation with Duffy Stone, he said he knows caseloads aren't a perfect metric. But I went back to him to get his take on what Wilson had to say. He said he thinks caseloads are still a relevant measure because prosecutors have to do a lot of work up front to investigate individual cases and decide whether to charge accused people, 
send them to a specialty program, or dismiss their cases altogether. He said he thinks the argument that prosecutors control their caseloads doesn't take that into account. While researching this story, I was curious about the estimated costs for prosecuting different types of crimes. I figured if funding is a main flashpoint of DA offices, there would probably be numbers out there prosecutors could use as a comparison. It sounded reasonable enough to me, but I couldn't find any studies or statistics. Stone had some thoughts about why not. There's just too much variance between cases, he said, in factors that can increase their cost for it to be a valid way to evaluate efficiency. Costs depend on whether the prosecution has to hire experts or pay for specialized scientific tests. And court alternatives to prosecution that are intended for rehabilitation, like substance use treatment programs or veteran courts, tend to be expensive. There's just too many factors involved in how how expensive the case is, and, and it should never be the deciding factor on how you deal with the case. In prosecution spheres where local governments have responsibility for funding the offices, a source of tension is how much each should contribute. Stone said the counties in his circuit want the taxpayer money they contribute to stay within their borders, but crime doesn't work that way. You can't assume that criminals focus on one particular area and that they have some type of respect for jurisdictional lines. They don't. Uh, The same, I have five counties. The same people that are shooting people in in Colleton County uh, are the same people that that, uh, are shooting people um, across the border in Beaufort County. Uh, Same people that are selling drugs in Jasper County or selling drugs in Hampton County. So you've got to you've got to push your line of defense back as far as you can, and that entails keeping other counties that are that are next to you and are close to you safe as well. So that inevitably means you have to be focused more on just your county. Hearing each side talk about why they have a harder job than the other drove it home for me that prosecutors and public defenders just don't see eye to eye. They couldn't even agree on how each side's role is tied to how the other functions. And I do not mean to indicate that the public defender's job is easy, but their job gets incredibly, uh, I, I think their job gets much easier the better we do our job. Because if I am, prop, you know, part of our job is sifting through the cases and ensuring that we're prosecuting the right people for the right crimes. And if we are doing that and we have the time to do that on every case and we spend the fo- and we're focused on doing that, then there aren't going to be very many cases, if any, that, uh, that ever even get into the system that the defense attorney has to, has to try to stop. Doug Wilson had a totally opposite view. He used the example of a routine DUI stop. A police officer will have a checklist even if not literally, of signs to look for and write up a report of the incident. He said the defense lawyer has the onus of going through available video footage and cross-examining the police officer to figure out if the DUI charge or even if the initial stop holds up. If you go all the way to what's the biggest crime we have, which is first-degree murder, prosecutor seeking death, there will be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of witnesses that the prosecutor has endorsed. Defense has to interview every single solitary one of those people, has to understand what's going on, has to read the volumes of discovery. If a prosecutor wants some additional interviews done, 
He calls the cops, calls the detective. He has an investigator in his office. They go do the interviews. Then the defense has to get that stuff, and you have to start all over again. And you have to look at their experts, and we have to get the, our experts. So the prep work for the prosecutor is here's your case that comes from the cops, and off we go. I'm not suggesting that they don't work. I'm just suggesting they don't have to work as hard. It didn't matter whether we talked about funding, caseloads, or even the fundamentals of what makes each side's job complicated. Prosecutors set up, public defenders set down. One side saw white, the other saw black. And while doing these few stories, I went back and forth between my sources to test what the other side had to say. So is anyone right? The more I reported, the more elusive an answer got, and the more clear it seemed that these two sides will always be looking at different colored skies. I'm Julia Cardi for Hearsay from Law Week, Colorado. For more episodes of our monthly podcast, subscribe on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud.